Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Burn Your Boats. If you are thinking about investing in a rental property, or maybe you already own one or two, this next hour is imperative for you to pay attention to. We discuss strategies on what not to do when buying your first investment properties. Now, please understand, this episode has nothing to do with which type of granite you should put in the kitchen or what color you should paint the front door. These are much more impactful, higher level mistakes that are made by so many newbie investors because their tunnel vision only allows them to focus on one simple metric, and that is monthly cash flow, irrespective of anything else. I myself bought eight rentals over my first 10 years of investing, and if I would have listened to this one episode before I got started on my journey, I would like to think I'd be worth 2x more just due to a subtle mindset shift and how I choose where to invest and what type of asset to invest in. Without further delay, let's get this show on the road. Ever wonder what burn your boats means? Picture this. 10, 15, 20 years from now, you are living your best life. You are not bound by the chains of a W-2 income. You're traveling, watching your children grow, being present in their lives. You're fulfilling all of your dreams and ambitions. Burn the Boats is a powerful metaphor for making positive changes in life and moving forward despite challenges. It means creating a new reality by breaking free from old habits, people, and tools that hold you back. Burning your boats is when you realize your worth, your value, and you make the choice to create change. Clark and David are successful real estate investors who understand the importance of wealth creation and breaking free of financial anxiety. They believe that anyone can achieve this by thinking differently, learning new skills, and saying no to things that do not align with your goals. This podcast highlights pivotal moments and milestones in life that can set you on a new path towards realizing your full potential. Make the choice to join Clark and David and their guests as they share their own experiences and what they have learned to do and not to do in real estate investing and share how you too can start your journey in creating meaningful wealth and live the life you deserve. Welcome, everybody, to Burn Your Boats podcast, episode number four. I am Clark Lunt, and I'm here with my co-host, David Shaw, and uh, we're excited to bring to you a topic today that I feel like is such a hot topic, and it's so important when you're first starting to get out. So, David, talk to us a little bit about what that topic's going to be and why it's even important at all and why you should care whether you're listening to this podcast. That's right. I'm looking forward to this. This is a, yeah. it's a subject that's dear to my heart. Uh, I have had a thousand conversations with investors that empirically learn these five or six things um you know and they as they advance they get more sophisticated they understand almost with a sense of humor they look back and say, oh, <laughs> you, wouldn't be, you wouldn't believe what you know the first four or five properties i bought and um so today we're going to try and help those investors that are getting started on their journey we're yeah. going to try and help them build the right type of portfolio and then by the next 30 minutes, we're going to talk about what not to do. 
The inversion right. of good is bad, right? So, right. you know, what makes a good portfolio? We'll discuss that. But let's talk about the inversion of a good portfolio is what makes a terrible portfolio. So, Clark, what is it and why is it investors start out when they're building out their portfolio? Why do they make these mistakes? So we'll, we'll go through the mistakes in a moment. But what is it and why is it that investors typically make the same mistakes over and over and over again? You know, there's, I think one of the biggest challenges, there's so much content out there right now and, and everyone is giving you all this information from it, whether it be a podcast or, or YouTube or, or whatever it is or, or different types of groups, Facebook groups. And everyone gives you these, these really, uh, I think genuine examples of what type of like return they should get on their, their, uh, their, their asset that they're buying. And ultimately they may be in a totally different state. They maybe have a million dollars in the bank or zero. There's all these different scenarios that help to create what their perfect uh, example of, of a good return is, right? Which has nothing to do with what you're looking to do, right? It's, it's, it's going to be narrowly focused to what you have. So I think a lot of times people get analysis by paralysis, and it's, it's very difficult, and they end up a lot of times not even getting out of the gate. And so what, what are you seeing? Like on, on your side, what are the big challenges that, that investors, or maybe they're thinking about investing, but they just can't get over that hump to make the first step? Um, and, and a lot of that are these, these negative challenges we see that we're going to talk about today. We're going to go through five or six of them. So what are you seeing on your side? I think it is, having had you know, thousands of conversations with investors, I think uh, it's, it's really what forces people to make these mistakes are the combination of really three things. Uh, number one, they have limited... Uh, equity Bonds. available, they've limited deposit, yep. if you will, to put down on a home. And so if you have a small deposit to put down at home, well, then you're limited as to the type of you know investment you can buy. And so right. you'll end up buying a, you know, a cheaper property, right? That's number one. You know, people are, some people are limited, but an awful lot of people are not limited by, you know, what it is that they can put down on their first home and they still make the same mistakes. So <laughs> what is the next one? People tend to want to buy when they're buying their first one, two, three, four investment homes. They tend to want to buy very inexpensive homes in the belief that they're less risk. You know, yep. that if I buy a $100,000 home versus a $500,000 home, I'm somehow taking less risk. That's number two. And number three is just experience. They haven't yet had the experience. They haven't experienced what I call the psychological bullets of owning a real estate portfolio over a 20-year period because all real estate is should be owned over a long period of time so what we're going to do at the end of the podcast we're going to talk about what would make a great real estate portfolio and why but what the point of today's episode is to outline the five or six things that so many investors starting out their investment career the mistakes that they make why they make them and so let's go into mistake number it. one that let's, we see let's, all the time, Clark. Every single number one. Number one. Yep. Is, is Everybody number, does this. Everyone does this. And not to say that we're not guilty of it, too. But um, I, I think that people prioritize this one way, way too much. And the number one thing, mistakes we see, is only looking and making decisions based on the, ca the projected cash flow of that rental asset. So... What, uh, David, when, when you hear an, an, a potential investor or maybe a, a, uh, a newer investor and they say, yeah, yeah, but it doesn't cash flow well enough, right? And so I'm not going to buy that one because it doesn't cash flow. But this one over here, cash flows much better or it's projected to cash flow because a realtor told them that or they just have, have pulled that. So when, when you hear that, how, do, how does that make you feel? Is it, is it a little bit like a punch in the, in the gut? 
Well, it's great. It's a great topic. Cash flow. Day one, month <laughs> one, minute one, year one, cash flow for a lot of newbie investors trumps everything. Right? Yeah, so course. you have your, you know, what, what people call a pro forma cash flow. And then we have right. a real forma, which is what it really <laughs> The real like. world. Yeah. The real world. Right. And so investors tend to prioritize $200 a month of cash flow over $80 a month of cash flow. But they right. simply, it, it creates so many mistakes flow from that one decision because you have influencers out there saying, oh, you need to buy this. It's got this amount of cash flow. As if cash flow is the number one thing that investors, long term investors, should be focused on. And quite honestly, it's just not. Because on December 31st, you know, at the end of the tax year, when you take in your depreciation, 4% depreciation on the house, you take in your mortgage interest relief, you understand your amortized payments, and you understand how the whole ball of wax actually is financially. It's not on a pro forma. It's on a, it's on a more complex IRR sheet. So most of the people that I meet, and, it, and this is fascinating, that make these mistakes, they're actually well-paid W-2 earners, are they business owners? And so $200 a month doesn't make a... a, a it doesn't make any difference. difference. Yeah. That's a fake dinner once a month, yeah. right? <laughs> and yet they prioritize a, a, a potentially life-altering decision <laughs> um, based on this $200 a month. So looking at cash flow and only looking at cash flow, in my view, is to look is to like basically buy a car entirely by looking at the interior leather. That's yeah. it. No more information required. I just, I like this car. I like the interior of this car. That's the only thing that I'm going to consider when buying this car. Real, real estate cash flow is not what makes you wealthy. It's just it's, not what makes you wealthy. It's kind of like, it's kind of like comparing, like, let's say I was, I like your car analogy and saying, uh, I want to buy a red car, okay, and I want to get from A to B, and I'm going to buy like a 1994 Red Accord or like a 2016, uh, you know, like a, a much, like a, a much nicer uh, BMW, right? And it's like, but they're both red, but the 1994 Accord is, is is much less expensive, so I might as well do that. Not even take into consideration. Well, yeah, but the engine has 286,000 miles on it, and the BMW has 26,000 miles on it. And oh, by the way, it's got a backup camera on the, the BMW, so there's less chance that you're going to back up and hit someone. But in in looking at cat, just looking at cash flow, it's kind of like saying, yeah, but I'm just going to buy the 1994 Accord. I don't care that it's got a huge dent in the um, the the engine is the original engine, and it hasn't had the oil changed in the last 90,000 miles. That's irrelevant because it's just much cheaper. And so I think that when I hear people say, well, this one doesn't cash flow as much as this one, it's like, well, wait a second. Is that one in a nicer neighborhood? Is that one uh, have a new roof? Does that one have a, uh, a, a neighborhood where the uh, it's much more uh, owner-occupied versus just renters? So if you want to just look at cash flow, then you're also saying that you should just ju we should all just buy 1994 Red Accords with 300,000 miles on it because that's the only thing that they're looking at. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of them, um, you know, we are – yeah, recovering fix and flip uh, operators, Clark. <laughs> so uh, we understand this. You know, we're solving. Yeah. When we go out and we look for those Goldilocks properties, we're trying to solve a number of different things. We're trying to get a B-class neighborhood or an A-class right. neighborhood that also cash flows, that also is younger, that also is, let's say, block construction, that also has newer electrics, new plumbing, new this, new that, new the other. So 
you know, there's there's finding that little sliver of Goldilocks properties out there that you can build a, a meaningful portfolio on is is a difficult thing to do. And so cash flow, um, when when that is your only concern, you're going you're going almost certainly to make the mistake that you will buy four, five, six, seven, eight homes based on this criteria of cash flow. But then when you get to your eighth home, your ninth home, you'll start to understand that a high quality portfolio is, is, is a much different experience than a low quality portfolio. So let's talk about if you start out with cash flow as being right. a primary concern, well, more often than not, brings us to our second topic. Cash flow is usually found in C-class properties. Now, people buy these C-class properties thinking that they're and D and F on occasion, right? Yeah. Um, so cash flow is usually found in older C-class properties surrounded by other older C-class properties that are mostly tenant-occupied. Why is yeah. that a bad idea? Why, why should people not do that, Clark? It's it's something that is, and it's a great point that you bring up is that when you're buying in these these lower quality neighborhoods, guess what's going to happen? It's going to be a trickle down effect of, of five or six or seven or I could probably 15 things if we were willing to stretch this out is you're going to be buying an older property, which isn't the end of the world. Right. There's plenty of beautiful neighborhoods with older products. Right. But you're going to have less pride of ownership, right? So the person that you're buying it from probably put a lot of Band-Aids on this property. They probably covered up a lot of things. They swept a lot of things underneath the rug, right? And that makes for a lot of hidden things that you won't necessarily find. And an inspector is not going to find everything. So when you buy it, you may not find out that, that plumbing bad for six months or a year. And then you're having to go in and replace that plumbing, which means that you will never get one more dime of rent. Tenants don't care if you have updated plumbing or old plumbing. All they care about is that they can take a shower, they can use the restroom, and everything is fine, right? So the result of buying in that C-class means you have a much higher chance that you're going to have a lot of uh, deferred maintenance that you're going to have to do, okay? Now, you're going to be a neighborhood that's not going to be as safe, okay, which means your, your pool of tenants to choose from is going to be much smaller. That property manager that may manage that property is going to be less excited, and they're going to be less enthusiastic to want to go out there, right, because it's probably more dangerous. When the faucet does inevitably break, you're going to have to send a plumber out there. It's harder to get vendors to actually go out there because it's just not as safe, and there's a lot of issues with the property. So that trickle-down effect of all those different things of less tenants, right, you've got less um, vendors that want to go out there, property managers aren't as happy, it's it's just a, a recipe for disaster. What 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 do you f feel about that? Have you seen that before? Have you seen that in, in past experiences? <laughs> have I seen that before? You know, typically <laughs> uh, I stay I have I've stayed away from classy properties my entire career, and okay. um, it's been it's it's been eye opening when I do um, onboard new clients of mine and I ask their real estate journey, and it's just like honestly, it's like. Nine out of ten investors come to me having made these mistakes, and right. they're trying to unwind, you know, those first four, five, six, seven. And to your point, they don't regret it. They've learned an awful lot. Of but, course. But they're trying to unwind it. And we're going to, as we make our points here today, um, it's it's you could just save yourself a lot of hassle by buying the right type of real estate portfolio from day one. Instead of yeah. buying um, properties, low-income properties that you think have, or you've been told, have better cash flow. And let's talk about C-class properties. So you mentioned they're older. You mentioned the tenants. They're more financially vulnerable. Something happens right. to that tenant, check, guess you're check not getting check. paid rent this month. Yep. 
the, the, the properties will have higher crime. So there could be a shootout down the street. Now all of a sudden your tenant wants to get out of Dodge. Right. right. And it's not your fault. So your tenant's going to want to move out, right? Um, right? In the middle of their lease, they're like, you know what? I don't feel safe here anymore. Um, that's going to be a problem. You mentioned vendors. Your property manager is not really going to want to go there, certainly not late at night. I guess there's, there's a lot of other things. These, these neighborhoods tend to be very heavily rental orientated. Okay. And not many owner-occupiers want to live in these neighborhoods. So there's a lot more cars on the street, parked on the lawns. You know, it could be a lot more occupants in each of these homes. These aren't like, you know, you know, uh, mom, dad, and 1.2 kids neighborhoods. Right. These are mom, dad, uncle, aunt, 4.9 kids. Yeah. And the other relatives are usually staying over. Friends are crashing on couches. That's the neighborhood we're we're picturing here. That's where the the cash flow is best, right? Yeah. Guess guess another thing, Clark, you can't do. You can't improve your property. And you can put a new roof on, put new flowers in a yard, resaw right. the yard, paint the exterior, put new windows in, put a nice new yellow front door on, and nobody. So you've added all of this value, but nobody is going to buy that house off you other than another investor because it's a low-income neighborhood. So you can do all the improvements you want, but a- an actual real-world buyer is not going to want to move into that neighborhood no matter how nice you make it. So you can't force um appreciation and that's and, a big what part you... of what it is to have a real estate portfolio is that you can force appreciation so class c properties just just avoid them just don't do it that's my or, experience and 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 take take i've got a, a funny it's not funny story but um two things that i'll say on what you just said number one is that if it, a lot of people if you're just listening to this you can't see us but um David, you've mainly stayed in the B category and up, right? And that's kind of yeah. how you build your portfolio. I only buy in the B and up now, but in my in my when I was making these rookie mistakes, which is the whole reason for this episode, is that I probably own I don't know 10, 12, 14 C. Some of them are now into the B category, but some of them are still stuck in C because it, that's just they they weren't good areas to start with. If if people are watching this, they can see that you have a nice full head of hair, and I do not. Okay, I have no hair, so. <laughs> Part of being in a C-class owner and a, a landlord is that you tend to lose your hair much, much quicker. Or you could be in a B-class and still have a nice crop of hair like you have. So that's just a, a kind of a side thing. It's hard to, to express that on a spreadsheet, but it's something that is the real world. And I'm, and I'm the cue ball over here because I've got 12 properties, which leads me to the reason that some of the reasons I've lost is hair is I've had, this is embarrassing, I've had three different houses where I've had a shooting go down either at the house or on the same street, <clears throat> I had a vendor that was painting one day and a bullet went through uh, their truck, their, their work truck. I had another one where a shooting actually went and one of my tenants got shot. Now it was by one of her family members. Um, and then I had a, a, another uh, shooting um, that was right down the road and the, actually the tenant didn't feel safe and they had to move out. Those are horrible stories. Like, you know, and I, I still own these properties and, I'm, and and if I could go back, I wouldn't have bought those. I would have taken these advice that we're giving today and bought in nicer, better areas so that I don't have to worry about shootings. Can you imagine your property calling, your pro- property manager calling you and saying, hey, David, by the way, uh, you know, 123 Main Street tenant just got shot. I can't even imagine it. Um, I bet, I, but I'll bet, you, I'll bet you one thing, though. I'll bet you those properties have amazing cash flow. They, you know what's funny is that they didn't have amazing cash flow, and then over time, 
um, you know, I had to spend all the cash to, to put on the new roof and replace the plumbing that didn't show up in the inspection and do all these different things. But I have, even though I made all those mistakes, right, I've held them long enough to where the real estate market is self-corrected. And over time now, if I go back, I would have, I would have liked to have still had a little bit more, a few more hairs on my head and not had to go through those experiences. But I learned a lot from those. But if you could just avoid just like go to the next step above whatever those properties are considered is when you're starting your, your investing career, you, you, you will be so much better off and you're not getting these calls. And I, I, the last thing I want to do is my painter calls me and they're like, Clark, there was just a shooting down the that like three, three houses down. What, what do you want us to do? I'm like, I don't know. What, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to tell your painter there? Keep painting, leave. Don't, you know, leave the house half blue and half red. Like, what do you do? Like, there's nowhere in the manual on how to buy the, the proper, you know, the right rental property where your painter calls you and says there's a shooting two doors down and the, the, the uh, police are putting yellow tape. What do you do there, David? I don't know. I, I, I still don't know. I think we've established that buying in C-class, buying C-class <laughs> property uh, in highly, you know, rental areas with high crime has got its downsides. Um, say we so. asked about your cash flow. I, I, I asked real quick, but I bet you had great cash flow. That our point is, our point here, we're still dealing with point number one, is like, you know, chasing cash flow. But I'll bet you another side of it, you, you know the latter part of your portfolio, you know my portfolio. Yep. You know that appreciation has really not happened in your lower, in your, in your high cash flow, lower income portion of your portfolio. Did you get much like growth in that portfolio over the years? that part of it? It, it 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 grew but if i would have if i would have just went out and maybe bought like the next tier up in terms of like a more of a family neighborhood i know that the the value of of what i'm worth and what a bank looks at me as it would be at least probably 1.5 to 2x better just by getting a little bit out of that and not not focusing so much on the cash flow um because let's say that let's say i did make more cash flow let's say i made an extra thousand or two thousand dollars a year but those properties that were a little bit nicer may have appreciated by another hundred or two or three hundred thousand i don't care how much cash flow you have when the property appreciates at a, at, a, at a much higher pace you're not having to feel those bad phone calls anymore from property managers you have less things to fix you have better tenants that are usually you alluded to earlier is that they stay longer right they actually usually they're moving in there because they're going to treat that kind of like it's their home. They're going to be less transient. And we could go on and on about all the all the nice things about buying in, in better neighborhoods. And you've seen it. You have it. And I've learned it over probably the last five years where I've started to buy much nicer things. And ultimately, my life is just there's less stress. These tenants get yeah. it's crazy how they just pay on time and they pay their electric bill. And uh, when there's a, when there's a big problem, they pick up the phone and call and say, hey, will you fix that? But a lot of times the assets are nicer. So they don't have you don't have as much uh, capital expenditures or repairs to do. I mean, it's like a win, win, win. But the challenge is, is trying to do it earlier than later. So you don't make the mistake that I made, which is buy your first 12 properties like that or 12 or 14. And you start from the very beginning and getting a, a better portfolio. Well, it's hard to unwind these properties. That's another downside to a C-class property. It's hard to sell. It's hard to get out of. Not a lot of people want to buy it, you know, except maybe another real estate investor. And, you know, by and large, that real estate investor is going to want a big discount to buy that property from you. Always. Um, they're not going to appreciate. So we're, we're, we're going to do the inversion of what makes a terrible portfolio at the start to what makes a great portfolio at the end. Uh, at the end of this uh, episode, we're going to do a summary as to what people should uh, consider doing as they open up their and their account, their real estate portfolio. So you know, try and avoid making those mistakes um, of buying a classy property because just yesterday we had a conversation with our with our lender. Now this is a commercial, this is a commercial lender, 
Um, he he has got a front row seat in real estate investing. He works with very very successful, very sophisticated real estate investors. And he told us a story just yesterday uh, when we were doing a refinance in some of ours, and uh, that he um, he lived in a house, nice house. Um, he moved out um, to move out of state for a year. I think it was a job opportunity. Himself and his wife, and they rented their house out, and um, they had a really bad experience with a tenant. And that tenant came in and, you know, they said they trashed the house. And um, this was the house that they got engaged in. This is the house they had their first child in. And then he moved back. You know, they, they come back into state. The tenant moves out. They come back into state. And, you know, the wife goes through the door and she bursts out crying. You know, her her, her beautiful, you know, yep. emotional all the memories. place yep. that she lived. All the memories. And it's trashed. And he, by and large, has never bought another piece of real estate in his life. He has he has not had the opportunity to grow wealth through real estate because they put, in this case, they put a low-income tenant into their house. And they should have done that. But what yeah. the real tragedy there is that the that experience on their first deal damaged the whole concept of real estate investing. And so she's like, I never want to do that again. Well, that's 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 the saddest part because you're taking one of the right. major pillars of leverage available to every one of us off the table is building out a real estate portfolio. So stay away from class C and below properties and class C tenants. Now, another thing that we see people, you know, they look at cash flow, they look at pro forma uh, and, and that's that's what trumps everything. But they avoid. So this is like point number three. They avoid. You know, buying in areas where population is increasing. Mm -hmm. So they're like, they might buy in, you know, there's a lot of places where population decreases. I'll just take Detroit as an example. And it's a big city that's now a small city. And in, you know, by and large, pretty, pretty deep financial trouble. And so it's going to be hard to have a lot of appreciation when you've got thousands of empty houses all around you. What do you think about that? I see a lot of investors buying yeah. older Class D properties in, 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 in areas where population is decreasing. And all the investors I see build, buying like Goldilocks high-quality properties in really, really high population increasing areas see so much more growth. So what, what, what do you take, what, what's your take on that, Sark? Yeah, it's it's a great point, and you know it kind of goes back to kind of like econ 101 of supply and demand, right? And I think the challenge is a lot of times people say, well, you know, if if the, the population is decreasing, all I need to do is just just find one tenant, right? I don't have to find I don't have to tenant the whole city. The challenge is that you think about the trickle down effect of a decreasing population. So you have people moving away, which means do you think you're going to have a big um, uh, companies coming in to provide good quality jobs? Of course not, right? You've got a decreasing population. So if you have less jobs, you're going to have less just actual tenants to choose from, right? You're going to typically have more tenants that are going to be more on probably like a check-to-check, uh, month-to-month kind of situation uh, in terms of how they're getting paid. And then it comes down to even further. So let's take it another step. Let's say that you have less people, so you have less people paying taxes, okay, which means you have less infrastructure for roads, schools, things like that. So now you have the schools aren't as, as good of a quality, right? And so it's just it's a culmination of so many things, and, and it's all because people are leaving. So guess what? Those properties are going to be cheaper. Right. And they're cheaper for a reason. And it's for all the things I just alluded to. What else are you seeing, David, on, on your side in terms of buying in areas where there's a high demand, which makes things it, and, and then it, the trickle up effect for so many other things? Uh, what are you saying? 
Well, when you're buying in a high demand area, and it's really important because it's not on a pro forma. Okay. It's so not, when you you're right. send you a pro forma right. with cash flow, is there is there a is there a sell on that pro forma that says supply <laughs> and demand is X or is Y? I love they that. They don't have a sell for supply and demand, right? They do not. And yet you just said it's e it's econ one one. Yep. Right. So that supply and demand will will impact everything about the the performance of the portfolio for you. If you're buying in lower income neighborhoods in population decreasing parts of the country, you're going to have bigger gaps in tenants or in tenancy. You're going to have lower rent. You're going to have more competition from other yep. investors. You're going to have less capital appreciation. You're going to have, by extension, you're going to have more transient tenants because if a tenant can very easily walk across the street and move into a newer home um, for the same price, they're going to do it. Whereas when in, in higher population, higher demand areas, somebody moves in, they're just glad to get it. They're glad that they've moved. They're glad that they've got a spot. Yeah. They're way more sticky in, 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 in higher demand areas where they've got to be, make a really, really conscious effort. Say, at the, end of the, at the end of this year, I'm going to move out. Because when they go out and there's a lot of demand, they might change their mind. Right? You know what? I keep going to these rentals and they're already rented. But if they keep on going to those rentals and are getting all sorts of incentives like a free TV and uh, you know, two months of free rent, a low-income person, that's a big deal to a low-income person. So stay away from neighborhoods and stay away from cities and urban areas that have decreasing population. I've, found, I've seen a lot of people invest in these areas and then they come to the point of their, of their investing career where they look back at these first five or six or seven or eight that they bought and they try and sell them. They're really, really hard to sell when nobody really wants to buy them. And there's no real, re, what I call retail demand, as in an actual real world person who has you know, a wife and two children want to move into this house. Um, they're, not going to, they're not going to want to buy that property in your C-class neighborhood with decreasing population. So stay away from, population's important, Supply and demand is important, right? So, so definitely don't make that quote unquote rookie mistake. And again, a lot of that stems from the, you know, this influencer telling you that, you know, it's got great cash flow. That's all that matters. You know, yeah, you know right. bye, bye, bye. You know, cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. Believe me, $200 a month, right? Is it's, it's, it's irrelevant. It's $2,400 a year of yep. cash flow. One maintenance item. Gone. Bang, that's gone. One yep. AC. And that's three years of that is gone. Yeah. Real estate wealth is not generated through cash flow. Understand that on the 31st of December, what the real ball of wax is, don't chase cash flow. Don't chase it into C-class neighborhoods. Definitely don't uh, chase it into population decreasing urban centers. Now, let's talk about the other super important part. And this is, I think this is outside of, you know, what we just talked about. I think this is the most important point that we're going to join that we're going to that we're going to discuss now which is using your conventional loan golden eggs wisely clark why, why don't you tell our listeners exactly what that means what i've just said so essentially what you're allowed to do is you're allowed to buy up to 10 you're allowed to get 10 loans that are conventional loans right so they're not commercial loans they're not based necessarily on the income that you're going to get from the property they're just normal loans where you're going to be able to get probably the best interest rates instead of rolling into a commercial loan but you only get 10 and the interesting thing about it is that you could get 10 loans that are $100,000 loans or you get 10 loans that are $500,000 loans okay it doesn't matter they they don't discriminate against the the amount up to a certain point so you get to choose whether you want to build a portfolio 
of 10 $100,000 homes, or you can build a portfolio with better high quality homes that are three, four, five hundred thousand dollars each. And yeah, it may take you a little bit longer to save up, but ultimately you want to use those loans to the best of your ability and get the highest quality assets, whether you're buying a, you can buy a quadplex with one. You could have 10 quadplexes, okay? So ultimately you only get 10 of these though. And so you need to use them very, very wisely. What have you seen, David, as to how people have, have maybe made some mistakes on, on how they've used those and, and what they regret and then what you've kind of advised them on? Because I know you see me, this a lot. Yeah, thanks for asking me this question because this is really near and dear to my heart because I see it I know. so often yeah. where people come to me um, and they have, oh, just, just we'll keep it at 10. So, um, you know, they're approaching their 10th conventional loan. And this is important. And to your point, they have 10, or let's say they have $900,000 homes. So their entire portfolio value is 900000 And to make an extreme example, let's say that's client A. has his he's used almost all his golden eggs and his entire portfolio value of nine homes to 900000 And then you have investor B who set out at the start and said, I'm going to build a high-value portfolio. And he bought in this case, nine $1 million quadplexes. His portfolio was worth $9 million. <laughs> right. $900,000 versus $9 million. Now, inflation is working on both of those portfolios in exactly the same way. So I would rather, let's say, appreciation is 5%. 5% of $900,000 is what the value of the, of the portfolio is increasing by every year, or 5% of $9 million. So it's a vast difference. You know, um, they both have four roofs, or excuse me, in this case, they both have nine roofs. You know, they both have not, you know, they both have nine insurances. They both have nine loans. They both have not. So right. by and large, these portfolios look and walk and talk very similar to, similarly to one another. But the reason why I, I find that this issue is so near and dear to my heart is when we have investors who have these nine $100,000 homes, and then they come to me. And they understand now, and they've owned, the, they've owned these nine homes for like five or six years, and they can see, well, hold on, you know, I, I, I can see other investors are making way more money than me, their portfolio growth, and their wealth is increasing way faster than mine. And then they come to me, and they're like, hey, David, you know, I'm interested in investing in the Tampa area, that's where, where we are. And I'll, I'll ask them, you know, walk me through your, your rest of your portfolio, and I'm like, wow, so you've got, you've got nine houses, you know, and three of them are like $80,000 in you know, choose your low-income city, right? And um, they've run out of golden eggs. They've only got one more conventional loan left. And so what they end up having to do is they end up having to try and sell those first four or five that are just, they're performing, but like they realize now, yeah, I get like $1,000 a month cash flow from them, but that's, that's not making me wealthy. They're worth when the same amount. The point, yeah. That's right. Uh, when, when people get to the point when they really understand real estate, real estate is about creating meaningful wealth and cash flow. And cash flow comes exponentially from higher value homes um, than it does from lower income homes. So when you, I've just seen so many investors try to unwind, they're glad they did it. Don't get me wrong. They learned a, they learned a ton. You know, they bought the property. You know, they, they've held it for five years. They've, they've lost their hair. You know, they've done all of these. They, they've learned a lot. They've built up a, a thick skin and a good yep. bit of experience. And now they're looking at, they, they can see quite clearly, a high-value, high-quality portfolio is just less stress, better tenants, 
better neighborhoods, more demand, lower downtime, lower maintenance, um, higher cash flow over the long period of time. And so unwinding that, like I just see so many of, the, of these people having to unwind their first six or seven just to release the golden eggs. So, so, yeah. so the golden eggs, like we cannot stress that enough. When you have 10 conventional fixed rate loans at your disposal, that is a uniquely American privilege to have a fixed rate loan for 30 years so that your loan always stays here, your monthly payment stays here. And over time, your rent rises, your rent rises, and that, that, that will always be, that, that delta there is essentially your cash flow. And so you may as well use these golden eggs on the highest possible quality asset you can buy because it is not less risk to buy a cheaper house. It is not more cash flow to buy a quote unquote cash flow on, on day one pro forma. You use the word real forma, right? It is not <laughs> a better idea to buy something just because it's got $200 a month of, of, of cash flow. Use your golden eggs wisely. So in summary, Clark, we said at the end of this conversation, we, this, this entire conversation was about inversion. What would make a terrible real estate portfolio? I think we've agreed. Chasing cash flow, C-class properties, high crime neighborhoods, you know, um, using your golden eggs in a, in a very wasted, wasteful know, in a, manner, in a very loose yep. way, not understanding that the overall portfolio, um, you know, leverage, growth, inflation, amortization is just working slower than a high value portfolio. A lot of people come to me over the years and tell me, oh, I've got 20 doors or 30 doors. And I've seen other people come to me and say, yeah, I've got seven doors. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, that, that's, that's great. So which is better, 30 doors or 10 doors? Which is better? Yeah. The answer to the question is that's irrelevant because you don't know the most important piece of right. information. Most important piece yeah. of information is what's the value of the portfolio? I've seen people come to me and say, yeah, I've got 30 doors. I'm like, that's great. And then I'll say, well, what's the value of your portfolio? It's like, oh, it's worth you know, 1.3 million. And I've seen people come to me over the years and said, well, I've got, I've got eight doors, you know, and I, what's the value? They say, oh, 8.2 million. Literally. Right. Yeah. Uh, who would you rather be? So, so it's not about doors. It's about the value no. of your portfolio. So buy a high quality, high value proper uh, portfolio that's, that, that leverage and inflation, amortization, and, and, and just growth of the value appreciation is working on the $8 million portfolio way harder than it is on a $100,000. So Clark, let's do the inversion of this, right? So what are, in your experience, when you talk to experienced investors, what are the factors that make a great real estate portfolio? Because you've done it in your life. You started yep. off with the class C properties and yep. you've moved into the essentially class A properties. Tell yep. me what, what makes a if, if classy properties and chasing cash flow make a bad portfolio, tell me what makes a great portfolio. You know, it's, it's to kind of dumb it down a little bit. And even if, even if, cause I think a lot of people that are going to be listening to this um, are very successful in what they do. And they've been thinking about getting into real estate, but for all the reasons that, that there's a million reasons why you should just not even get started. So to, to even get started, right, you may already be a real estate investor and you kind of don't even know it because you may be living in a house that you own, right? So if you live in a house that you own, you probably bought that house because you like the house, you like the neighborhood, it was safe, it had good schools, all those good things. Well, renters like all that stuff too, right? They're no different 
different than you. So if you live in a house, just to keep it super simple, is that if you look at whatever your mortgage payment is right now, let's just say it's $2,000. If you were to go into your same neighborhood and try and rent another property that's similar, let's say the mortgage or the uh, rent was $2,200 or 21 or 24 or whatever it was, right. that in itself, just go out and buy another house and move into it and rent that house out. Nobody knows that house better than you do right? Nobody knows the nuances of that house. You know that you fix it up. It's in good shape, all that kind of good stuff. So just super easy, actionable steps. If you currently live in a house and you know the neighborhood well, and you just go out and buy another house and physically move into that, when you buy that house and move into that new house, guess what? You're going to get the best rate that's available at the time that you buy it. Okay. And then you're going to know you'll probably, it'll be easier for you to find tenants because you can speak really um, confidently about the property and the neighborhood and all that kind of good stuff. It'll be easier to manage. You'll get some experience. So that's such an easy way to kind of get started is to just go out and buy another house and move into it and rent that one out. Now, let's just say you have no houses. Let's say you're a renter. You've been thinking about it. You make good money. You're, you're a good high W2 income earner. Um, I would say that just making the first step and buying a house that you, in a neighborhood you would like that you feel comfortable having your family come over or your mom come over to see it. Just buy a house and move into it and get that started. Live there for a year or two. Paint the walls. Make a few uh, upgrades to it. And then move into another house and rent that first house out. That is the easiest way to get started. It's the easiest way to get a loan. It's the easiest thing to do. Now, this first house you're buying potentially is not going to be your dream house. It's not going to be your forever house that you're going to necessarily be super, super proud of. But it's a safe area and it's something you feel good with. That alone, that one thing is the easiest way to get started. It's exactly how I got started. I lived in my first four houses and I just didn't sell, right? And so it's easy for me to talk about this. I'm very passionate about this because I bought a house. I lived in it, right? It wasn't that great of a neighborhood, but I lived there for a year or two. I fixed it up. I put some paint on the wall. I put a new roof on it. And then I just bought another house and I put tenants in the first house. It's that simple, right? And all I knew yeah. is that the rent that I was getting was more than my mortgage payment. I don't need and a did you Excel live calculator. In a, did you live Go in ahead. a Class C or Class B or a Class uh, F property at that time? I, no. I, I absolutely bought a uh, – it was kind of like a, a B-minus area, and then I okay. bought like a B-plus area, and then kind of like another B-plus area, right? So I just kept doing that. Um, but ultimately, it was just taking the action of buying something and not getting so – caught up in the analysis by paralysis. It's got to meet this return or this kind of cash flow or da da da. It was yep. like, no, no, no. I just bought a house and I lived in it. I got to live somewhere, right? I might as well pay yep. a mortgage payment versus just paying rent. And then I guess what? I had a roommate move in and made it even cheaper. So if you can take something away from this, at least on my side, because I want to hear what you have to say about what makes it a, pro a proper portfolio. But I'm speaking kind of like to the the person listening that maybe owns zero, one, or maybe even two houses, that's it, right? Is just being able to buy and move into something. It's easier to get a loan. You're going to get the best terms on the loan. You get to actually live in it. You're already living there anyways. Then it's easier to go and paint the walls and make the slight upgrades. You don't have to worry about tenants and scheduling and all that stuff. You understand the neighborhood. You can understand the way to place tenants because you know the neighbors. You can ask for referrals. It's just a win, win, win. It's the quickest way to get in, into real estate investing. And it's by actually just instead of paying rent. So that in itself is simple. Now, if you want to, David, you feel you're slightly different. So what would you uh, tell our listeners? Well, um, we use the word Goldilocks properties. So as you get started in your real estate journey, because remember, Clark, a lot of people, you know, they live in California. Like they live in, you know, live in high right. value yep. markets. And, you know, real estate, you know, that they're comfortable with might be $1.2 million. And it just absolutely, like, absolutely doesn't cash flow. I'm not saying cash flow is irrelevant. <laughs> Um, and so they're forced to invest out of state. So I, I, I would say, number one, remember, it is not just for cash flow, but it's actually about the overall port, portfolio value and golden eggs and quality. Okay, so buy properties that are a minimum of three or four hundred thousand dollars. 
okay. even better, buy multifamily properties with your golden eggs. Okay. Buy in neighborhoods that are almost exclusively owner occupied, where there's pride of ownership, where tenants want to live with low crime. How, how does right? someone Good know school. that? Like, how, how, how would you know if it's more owner occupied or if it's more renters? How, how would you, if you drove through a neighborhood, oh, how, would you, how would you figure that out? Available. There's a, lot, there's a lot of websites out there that have that information, citydata.com. They have block data, so you can actually go in and zoom right. in on the actual block, and you'll find out you know, a whole treasure trove of information about you know, who and what is in this neighborhood. So high-quality properties, high-quality neighborhoods, mostly owner-occupiers, um, look at the household income in that neighborhood, so I make sure that it's increasing. Again. City, city data is a very good place for this, where you, there's a little button and you can toggle. You can look at the, the block data and you can press this little button that says, what is the household income increase uh, since the year 2000? So you can see 24 years of household income in this neighborhood. And you can see if this neighborhood is improving, disimproving, or staying right. stagnant. And so you always want to grow. You always want to build a real estate portfolio where the household income is growing in in the neighborhood and then just use your good feeling as well like go there try and see it this idea like buying buying out of state and completely avoiding the idea of just going out and driving it it's gotta it's gotta look good it's gotta feel good it's gotta have you know one car maybe two cars parked outside but no cars parked on lawns there's got to be pride of ownership around because this is when it comes to selling your portfolio this is what your buyer is going to look at. So everyone out there listening to this who's starting out building a real estate portfolio, you might only have twenty or $30,000 to put down and get started. To Clark's point, getting started is better than not getting started. But I would contend it might be an idea. Instead of buying that you know, $80,000 home, do one of two things. Wait and save up a little bit more so you can buy a higher quality home partner with somebody so you can buy a higher quality home go get a second loan from somebody so you can buy a higher quality home because just the growth trajectory of having a portfolio of high quality homes versus having a, high, a portfolio of low quality homes it starts out you know you you've, you've heard this before this in this minor difference in direction so a, there's this concept of you know a, a plane leaves LAX and going to New York and it moves by one degree or two degrees, and it ends up in Florida, you know, um, in, its, in, its, in its flight path. And so while at the very beginning, you would say, well, I've got, you know, two doors, or I've got two doors, and my cash flow is $200 a month. And, you know, the, so the next guy who's got a higher, higher quality portfolio, he might have no cash flow or even negative cash flow. I can guarantee you over time that the, the gentleman with the, um, or the buyer with the, uh, higher value asset and a higher quality asset is going to get to New York. <laughs> yeah. And in this analogy, the lower, you know, the, the what, quote unquote, lower risk portfolio, the higher cash flow portfolio is going to end up somewhere you don't want to be. So by quality, you're going to have better tenants. They're going to stay longer. They're going to be stickier. They're going to be more professional. They're going to pay you on time. They're going to do a lot of the maintenance themselves. When, when you get to turn over the yeah. home, the home's going to be in better it's going to be in better condition. It's going to need less um, maintenance when, when it does turn over. Your property manager is going to have a way better relationship, most likely, with the tenant. Vendors will happily go there late at night 
Um, you're, going not, you're not going to experience crime issues. You're not going to have people moving out because there's been a, a shootout down the street. The, the, the amount of advantages of going uh, and starting out as you mean to continue, and you will never regret building up a, higher, a high quality portfolio, you will almost always regret building up a, what, you, what are, is considered a low quality portfolio um, because the concept is that it's low risk. It's not low risk, it's higher risk. I love how you're, the way that you look at things is me and you have, have the same vision, but we come about it from a different way. So when I, when I asked you the question, I said, well, how do you identify if it's a, a high tenant or a, a high uh, owner occupied neighborhood? And you said, well, you know, you go on city data and you look at all those things. There's, I've been on city data exactly 0.00 times in my life, right? Um, now, as I get more sophisticated, I certainly start looking at bigger macro trends instead of just the micro. But if I'm in my first property or second property, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get my car. I'm going to go look at the house. I'm going to drive around the neighborhood. Is the grass cut? Are there couches on the front yard or are they not? Are there 16 cars in the front yard? And if all, and if, if all the yards are kind of nicely cut and it looks like that there's pride of ownership and there's not blue tarps on roofs, that's good enough for me because I feel like that's safe enough. So, you know, when I'm first starting out, I'm, you know, I think that, that the analytical person is going to get on citydata.net or whatever the website is and look at like the percentages. The person that doesn't have quite the analytical brain like I do is just going to drive around. I may go talk to some neighbors because I'm friendly and I like making new friends. Say, hey, how's the neighborhood? And whatever they tell me, I'm putting all my stock in the fact that they, yeah. the, the Jim, the neighbor four doors down, said he's been here for 20 years and he loves it and it's safe. And I'm like, oh, good enough for me. And right. I would live here and I like this. So I think that there's no right or wrong answer right but it's just funny yeah. how, how you look at things and I look at things and, and there's probably 10 other different ways to look at it well it is it is a business it's it is. a business so uh, and, and there is a destination there's a final destination of building up a real estate portfolio and that is so that it creates significant wealth for you so that you can retire and it creates significant yep. cash flow for you so you can retire so you're getting into a marriage and it's not unlike the concept of getting into marriage with another human being it is a business that it has an objective, and that objective is what's important. Not the actual house, not the orientation of the house, not, the, not one house, quite frankly, because at the end of the day, you won't even remember where your houses are. Right. You know, when you get to be a significant real estate portfolio, you're going to have to consult a spreadsheet to know an address. People call me all the time and say, hey, David, you know, do you own one, two, three? I, 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 I don't know. I'd have, have to go and see. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, and the bottom line is, is that the outcome, the overall portfolio value, um, and the impact of inflation, amortization, and quality tenants on that portfolio so that I can retire, you know, and I can live off the cash flow, and that the value of these properties is always increasing, and, and the, um, the debt on these properties is decreasing. And at the end of the day, I have a $10 million or $20 million portfolio of unlevered homes that are high quality 10 years from now or 20 years from now. That's what's important. It's not, oh, I'm going to make $200 on the very first month I own this property. Right. That's irrelevant. So that, I, I, I think we should leave it right there. That's the final word I, I have on it. You know, so we're going to leave that. We're going to leave today's podcast right there. Yeah, High quality. Yeah, don't, you know, don't make these mistakes. You are not taking less risk. You're taking more risk. You are not making more cash flow. You're making less cash flow. You have to fully understand what an IRR sheet is and understand what an IRR, an internal rate of return, is for real estate. Talk to your accountant about that and use your golden eggs wisely. I think that's, does that summarize it, Clark? Yeah, I, I, you know what though, the IRR thing is, is more sophisticated and if you've got one property or zero or, or one, I, I'm going to refer back to keep it simple, stupid. Neighborhood that you would move into, 
is it would your mom feel comfortable coming over to visit you or the tenant that you're going to put in um, do you understand the area is your mortgage payment kind of in line with what the market rent is and that's it and go out and just get a, a normal loan and then as you grow you can start to kind of play a little bit more chess instead of checkers but if there's no chess checkers pieces on the board you don't even have a board at all then then what are we even talking about here so i think the takeaways that i want listeners to, to take away from this this chat is c areas are always going to look best on a spreadsheet and they're always going to end up having more uh anxiety and stress that are going to come from uh lower uh, quality tenants lower quality condition of the property. You're going to have property managers that aren't going to care as much. You're going to have vendors that aren't going to care as much. You're going to have tenants that aren't going to care as much. All of that means that you, the chance of success is so much lower, right? And ultimately, you're going to keep coming out of pocket. You're going to keep writing checks. And the worst thing that you alluded to earlier is that what happens if you buy that first property and you have such a sour taste in your mouth that you just throw your hands up in the air and you say, I'm not doing it anymore. That's the worst thing that can happen. And that's what we want to avoid on this call. And that's why you're listening to this is to take action, to buy something that you are going to have pride of ownership. The neighborhood's going to have pride of ownership. You can put your your investment into it and then rinse and repeat and, and do that two or three times. If you just did those, those things without anything else, you don't have to have a, a huge, great calculator right on Excel to be able to see that my mortgage payment is 2000 and I think the rent's going to be 2200 in a year or two when I move out. That, that means you're at least probably going to break even. You can get some experience on learn how to uh, manage the property properly or give it to a property manager, either one. And getting in the game is the most important thing. And the question is that if you took some of these tips that we're giving to you today, maybe you get in the game a little bit quicker, you have a little bit more confidence, and ultimately you're probably going to get to your second property a little bit quicker or your third property, whatever that is. So that's what we want to take away from today. Don't make these rookie mistakes, guys. That's Don't it for today. It. Thank you so Don't much. That was gold. See you guys. Bye-bye, bye, everybody. Listening. Thank you so much. Great. You've been listening to the Burn Your Boats podcast with Clark Lunt and David Shaw. We would love to hear from you. Please reach out at burnyourboatswealth.com with comments, questions, and if you have a topic you would like Clark and David to discuss on an upcoming episode. We would very much appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review Burn Your Boats podcast on your favorite podcast listening app. And make sure to follow and share on social media. Content in Burn Your Boats podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not legal or financial advice. Please review our legal disclaimer at burnyourboatswealth.com. Thank you for listening.